read a few words from the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Father, as we read these words that were penned so long ago, we know that they are as true today as they were then. And Father, we desire to be oaks of righteousness, as it were. We desire to receive from you the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garland instead of ashes. Lord, we are we're looking at a world which is decaying into ashes and into mourning. And Lord, we desire to reflect the glory and the righteousness of Christ into this sin-darkened world. We ask that you will strengthen our faith, that you will focus our thoughts, that your word will speak to us powerfully of the needs that we have and of the faithfulness of our God to meet those needs. We pray that your word will be living and powerful to us today. We ask that you'll bless as the word is proclaimed in the service this morning and around the world as your word goes forth. May it bring the harvest because we know that your word will not come back without fruit. It is not preached in vain. And so we trust that your kingdom will expand and that the forces of darkness will be forced into retreat. Bless your people this day, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Boy, the quiet's almost deafening, isn't it? First Samuel chapter 19, beginning at verse 11. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. And Michael took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He's sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me on his bed, that I may put him to death. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with the quilt of goat's hair at its head. So Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me like this? And let my enemy go so that he escaped. And Michael said to Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I put you to death? Now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed at Naoth. And it was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is in Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. But when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they prophesied also. And when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied also. So Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah, and came as far as the large well that is in Siku. And he asked and said, 
Where are Samuel and David? And someone said, Behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. And he proceeded from there, proceeded there to Naoth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came <coughs> upon him also, so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore they say, is Saul also amongst the prophets? Last week we began looking at this particular passage and we saw that after David fled from Saul's presence, he went to his house and the messengers, not messengers actually, kind of like the hit, hit, man, the hit squad of Saul, came to assassinate David. And, and we read, studied through that whole section there about the, the image put in the bed and David escaping and so forth. And when David escaped, he fled out of the city of uh, Ramah and he fled, I'm sorry, of Gibeah and he fled north to Ramah. Uh, just to keep us apprised of our locations here, again, Gibeah is right here. It's just north of Jerusalem, a very few miles, about five miles north of Jerusalem. And Ramah is about three miles north of that. The Ramah we're talking about, not this one over here. The Ramah we're talking about is right there. Ramah of Samuel, Nabi Samuel. And um, so David has fled to that spot. Now, three miles is not a particularly long distance to run. And so David escaped sometime during the night, and so he was certainly long time at Ramah before Saul even discovered that he was gone. So uh, Michael had given David plenty of time to make the escape. Michael loved David. We can't say that she didn't love her father, but she didn't love what her father was doing because of her love for David himself. So she participated in this and, of course, made up the story that David had threatened her with death if she didn't go through all the subterfuge which, of course, she had planned from the beginning. David just simply availed himself of Michael's plan. He was not responsible for the plan himself. So it was under the cover of darkness, certainly, that David made his slight to Ramah, knowing that Saul would probably come to the house because Saul knew exactly where Samuel lived. Because you remember way back when we were first studying about Samuel, Samuel himself had... Uh, had uh, Saul himself had come to Samuel's house, so he knew exactly where Samuel lived. And certainly that would be the first thought probably in Saul's mind. Now, where would David go? Probably not home because he knew I would look for him there. Maybe he fled to Samuel. And so Samuel took David to Naoth, we're told in this passage. Naoth is used only in these two chapters, 19 and 20. The only place in all of Scripture where the term Naoth occurs. There is no known location with that name. Historically, today, there's no way of knowing where this Naoth was because we're told in the passage, Naoth in Ramah. So some scholars believe that the word Naoth should be interpreted as a common noun, not as a proper noun, meaning something like habitations. And so it's believed that this Naoth was either in the city of Ramah or right in its immediate environs so that it was, it was associated directly with Ramah itself. So it wasn't far, probably from Samuel's house, probably within a mile or half a mile of Samuel's house. Where did he go? He took him to the place where he operated the school of the prophets. Now we run across that term several times in scripture. We run across the term sons of the prophets. 
Let me just say a word about education in, in those days. There was no formal education system in ancient Israel. And so young people back then didn't have to face school. They didn't get summer vacations uh, because they didn't have to go to school in the first place. Education of the young was primarily in the hands of the parents. Novel idea. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, you remember in the, what's known as the Shema, we read down and it says as you get down into that chapter that the parents are to burn the truth into the minds of their kids, putting it on their foreheads and on their arms and on the doorways and the gateways and, and constantly pounding the truth or delivering the truth to the young people. So the parents were the number one teachers of the children in those days. I mean, we had homeschooling. <laughs> it was the only kind of schooling that was really readily available. Now, after 500 B.C., you begin to have a formal system that operated through what was known as the synagogue. The synagogue, which apparently was established during the time of the Babylonian captivity when the uh, Jews had been taken over into Babylon, they developed the concept of the, of the house of prayer, uh, the synagogue, because the temple had been destroyed and there was no longer any temple worship going on. And so the, the, that's when the, the concept of the rabbi was born. There were no rabbis in the early history of Israel. And, and so the rabbi becomes then the primary teacher, particularly of the young men, uh, in the village. So the, I should say probably secondary, still supposed to be the parents, number one, then the rabbi, number two. But that didn't exist in the day we're talking about here. At the time of Samuel, parental instruction and apprenticeship in whatever it was you were to do were the primary means of education. So if you're going to be a shepherd, you just simply went out and watched other shepherds and shepherded. And if you're going to farm, you farmed. If you're going to be a mason, a carpenter, whatever you were going to be, you were an apprentice. You didn't go to vocational school. You didn't go to junior college. Uh, you didn't even go to grammar school to gain that. The only exception is the school of the prophets. Moses was considered by the Hebrews to be the archetypical prophet, the man whom the scripture called a prophet of God. And so when Samuel was raised up by God, he becomes the first prophet of Israel with that being specifically his, his title and his purpose and his, and his vocation. Moses was more than, than a prophet. He was, of course, Israel's leader. He was a type of Christ. Uh, so many things that Moses was. The role of the prophet was to teach the Torah to the people. The role of the prophet was to hold the population accountable before God, its leaders, and the people themselves. His job was to provide relevant instructions based on, on the first five books of the Bible. That was the role of the prophet. And to make it applicable to the events of that time, to the day and the age of that time. A prophet wasn't somebody going around with his eyes shut and saying, well, 4,000 years from now this is going to happen. A prophet was a teacher, a preacher, a proclaimer of the word. Sometimes they would have prophetic visions, but the primary role of the prophet was to proclaim the word of God. And they served as sort of the conscience of the nation. If the king went awry, well, we know what happened, right? We have Elijah pounding on the king and Elisha and, and Isaiah and all the different ones coming along uh, to speak the truth of God to the king and to the nation in general, criticizing criticizing the actions and the practices of the people when they deviated from the Word of God. 
That was really the, the crux of the whole thing, deviation from the Word of God. And of course, calling for repentance and then obedience. It really is, the instructions of Scripture are really quite simple. <laughs> you know, repent and obey, you know, is what it boils down to. And, and that was the job of the prophet. And of course, we see this as we look at Samuel. And, and of course, as we move on, we're going to be going into the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And then, of course, as you move beyond that into the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and the minor prophets like uh, Hosea and Amos and Obadiah, these are all individuals who are called by God for this particular function. Now, Samuel learned directly from God. He didn't go to a school of the prophets. We, we remember how many times did we study in the first part of Samuel where it says, the Lord appeared to Samuel, the Lord spoke to Samuel. There was direct instruction from God to Samuel. Of course, he received instruction also when he was uh, raised in the temple under Eli. These lessons he teaches to the sons of the prophets. The sons of the prophets are not actually sons of the prophets. They are disciples of the prophets, men who have gathered together who felt the call of God to become proclaimers of the word. And so they gathered together to sit under the tutelage of, in this particular case, Samuel. In this school, they learned the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of, of the Scripture, the Law, the books of Moses. This is what they learned. They learned it so they could proclaim it. They learned it so they could evaluate their society relative to the Law itself. And then they could point out the error of the way of the people and of the leaders and then call them to repentance. One of the things they learned in the School of the Prophets was to be fearless in the proclamation, or at least that their goal should be to be fearless. Of course, only God could make them truly fearless. But they were to proclaim the truth before king and peasant alike. It seems that the young men were called to the ministry of prophecy as a profession. By that I do not mean that they were paid preachers. But they did receive gifts, like gifts were given to, uh, to Samuel. But this was to be the main focus of their lives. They might at the same time be a farmer or be a herdsman or something to provide for themselves, a sort of what we would call tent maker missionary. But their main focus was to proclaim the word and to call the nation to repentance before God. So the school of the prophets, as we see it mentioned in here, particularly beginning with Samuel, is about the only really formal, as formal as that was, relatively informal compared to what we would go to, was about the only real organized uh, educational system there that existed at that particular time. When Saul uh, finally discovered where David was, which of course it was a foregone conclusion that wouldn't be very long uh, before that would be understood, uh, he sent some agents to arrest David and bring him back before uh, Samuel, before uh, Saul there in Gibeah. He could be given a kangaroo trial, of course, and executed. However, we cover in this passage that God protected David in an extremely unusual way. When Saul's men approached Samuel and they came across the company of the prophets and they saw Samuel there, as the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, they started prophesying, you know, proclaiming the Word of God. Probably some measure of ecstatic utterance, we don't know what all, but you know, it must have been very shocking to those individuals as well as to everybody else. Suddenly the proper prophets has expanded, at least momentarily here. Uh, those who are being or not now. No, it's wham. Spirit God comes on Saul and Saul starts to prophesy. Just like the evil spirits do not ask permission to enter. They just come in when the heart is ready for them to come. And so here is Saul proclaiming 
the Word of God, speaking however, whatever this uh, all involved, obviously in a prophetic way. Speaking differently from what he had been speaking just hours before when he was sort of like Saul of Damascus, I mean Saul of Tarsus was when he was on the way road to Damascus, breathing, you know, as the scripture says, breathing hatreds and, and destruction and wanting to kill people. Well, it's the same way with this Saul. And what we discover here is what God does even beyond this. In an act of total humiliation, Saul was driven to strip off his clothing and to lay on the ground all day and all night. The Hebrew here does not necessitate stark nakedness. It simply means he stripped off clothing, maybe all, but maybe not all, most probably not all. His royal robes, though, whatever were the symbols of the signia, uh, insignia of his office were stripped off. And so the, the idea here is he's lying on the ground, prostrate before the uh, prophet of God, having torn off the symbols of his office, declaring in effect he has forfeited his office because that is what God has already proclaimed through Samuel. So we run across this question again that's asked, is Saul also amongst the prophets? This harkens back to the days right after Samuel had first been called by God to proclaim to Saul that he was to be the king in Israel. We're not going to go back to chapter 10, but in chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, we read that not long after Saul had anointed, sorry, Samuel had anointed Saul to become king in Israel, we were, to, were told in that passage that he joined the company of the prophets and he prophesied. And the people who knew Saul and who saw him doing this were so amazed at what they saw that in, in what appeared to be a radical transformation of this man because they knew him before and, and, and this was not his character, they asked the question, is Saul also amongst the prophets? And remember, we're told it became a proverb. It became a, a, a statement that was made frequently. I think I mentioned to you back when we were talking about that uh, the first time that um, there's a phrase that you and I may not use it too much, but it is commonly used in literature, and, and that is the phrase to cross the Rubicon to cross the Rubicon, which is another phrase meaning to burn your bridges behind you. Because back in the days of the first century before Christ, a man by the name of Julius Caesar camped north of the Rubicon River and his enemy was at Rome. And he had to decide if he crossed the Rubicon River meant he entered into the heartland of Rome which, and it was forbidden in Roman law for a man to bring an army across the Rubicon into the heart of Rome because that was like committing treason against your own country. And so we had to decide, do, do I try to go down and convince Pompey just to let me, you know, help him serve or, or do I take my army because the guy's going to kill me? He chose to take his army, which meant he crossed the Rubicon. He committed himself irreversibly. It's do or die from that point on. And so that's really what is, you know, the kind of an idea here. This becomes a proverb. Is Saul amongst the prophets? Meaning, whoa, whatever's happening is incredible, unbelievable. And, you know, it be, could be used in almost any circumstance and simply meaning that something is unexpected and unexplainable. Here we have what appears to be deja vu, but it isn't really deja vu because in this case, the question requires a negative response. Is Saul amongst the prophets? And the answer is logically, <laughs> no way. Saul's not amongst prophets. Why? Because everybody in the country knows the character of Saul now. Over years, he has demonstrated his, his opposition to God, his disobedience, his, his desire to destroy David, everything that was not of God. 
And so no one believed that he was truly amongst the prophets. The commentator Delich has an interesting insight concerning God's power and purpose here in doing this, what he did to Saul here, causing Saul to lose control of himself and to begin prophesying. And these are the words of, of Delich. Saul was seized by this mighty influence of the Spirit of God in a more powerful manner than his servants were, those three groups he had sent before, because, both because he had most obstinately resisted the leadings of divine grace and also in order that, if it were possible, his hard heart might be broken and subdued by the power of grace. If, however, he should nevertheless continue obstinately in his rebellion against God, he would then fall under the judgment of hardening, which would be speedily followed by his destruction. I think one of the principles we have to always bear in mind as we study through Scripture is behind everything is God's grace. Many people have a vision of the Old Testament as, a, as, as God being a fire-breathing, ready-to-destroy-everybody kind of God, and then the New Testament is a very loving and kind. Well, this is crazy uh, because God is the same every day, yesterday, today, and forever. He's never changed. And it's a matter of interpretation and understanding that in the Old Testament, grace, I mean, it's all full of grace if we really understand what's happening here and why it's happening. God's grace is behind this. God is giving Saul another opportunity. But in this, Saul is much like Pharaoh in Egypt at the time of the Exodus. God gave Pharaoh a chance to let my people go. And then when he didn't, he performed a plague and then another plague. And how many plagues does it take to make a Pharaoh let the people go? How many times do you have to be hit up beside the head? Well, Pharaoh, we're told, continually hardened his heart against the demands of God as presented by Moses. Until what? Both he and his country were destroyed. Well, the escape of David from this trap that was set by Saul in Gibeah traditionally is considered to be the, the background, the milieu for the 59th Psalm. I'm not going to read the whole psalm, but I'd like to read a few verses from the 59th Psalm. And just, just understanding this, this background, this environment for this. In the first few verses of Psalm 59, David is saying, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Set me securely on high, away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity. Save me from men of bloodshed, for behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me, not for my transgression nor, nor, nor for my sin, O Lord. For no guilt of mine they run and set themselves against me. Arise thyself to help me and see. And then in verse 16, the end of the psalm. But as for me, I shall sing of thy strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of thy loving kindness in the morning, for thou hast been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to thee, for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. As we read on in uh, the 20th chapter of 1 Samuel, we um, see what David does next. Beginning at verse 1 of chapter 20, then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, What have I done? 
what is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? And he said to him, that is, Jonathan said to David, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Yet David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. So David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I ought to sit down to eat with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field until the third evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, because it is the yearly sacrifice there for the whole family. <coughs> if he says, it is good, your servant shall be safe. But if he is very angry, know that he is decided on evil. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is iniquity in me, put me to death yourself, for why then should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you, for if I should indeed learn that evil has been decided by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you about it? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if there is good feeling toward David, shall I not send you to you and make it known to you? If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also. If I do not make it known to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And if I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? And you shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. And Jonathan made David vow again because of his love to him, for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. We're talking in this passage about tremendous relationship here, a powerful relationship between these, these two men. Even though David saw God miraculously defending, I'm sure David was dumbfounded, you know, as he saw these men coming to take him, all of a sudden they're becoming prophets, you know. And, and, and even Saul himself falls on the ground and takes off his royal robes and is prophesying. And David is prophesying, whoa, you know. Talk about Lord being his defender, his high tower, his shield, his buckler. But he knew sooner or later Saul would be after him again. David had no faith that Saul would be transformed here. Now, David had done nothing, and David, that's, in the 59th Psalm, we read where David said, and what is my iniquity? I, I have, they're after me even though I have done no wrong. And, and David had done nothing except to honor Saul. Everything he did was to honor Saul. He, he, he won victories. He defeated Goliath. He did all these things to honor Saul himself. And yet, what is he receiving as payment? So he couldn't understand why is it that Saul wants him dead? David didn't know the rest of the story. 
as you and I do. David couldn't see behind the scenes as we can through the eyes of Scripture. You know, it's hard for us to constantly remind ourselves we have to put ourselves in the shoes of David or Samuel or whoever it was at the time and realize they didn't know what we know because the rest of the story hadn't been told yet. So they're living moment by moment, even as we're supposed to live moment by moment in faith, trusting God, because we don't really know the future either for ourselves personally. So as, as David fled from Naoth, probably while Saul was still flat out on the ground, you know, doing his thing, David thought, I'm out of here. You know, while this guy's incapacitated, I, I, I'm leaving here. I'm not waiting for him to come out of this. And he ran back to Gibeah. Now, Gibeah was a safe place to go because Saul was over at Ramah and, and half his contingent of henchmen were there too, all prophesying. So Jonathan, uh, he went to see Jonathan because Jonathan was not there at Ramah, so he went to see him at Gibeah. And certainly Jonathan knew that his father had gone to Ramah to, to look up David, but he couldn't bring himself to believe that his father had any intent of evil against David. And the reason for that was that Saul had sworn before Jonathan on the name of the Lord that he would do David no harm. And, you know, whatever degree Jonathan believed his own father, but certainly he wanted it to be so, right? How many times do we believe something to be true simply because we want it to be true? I mean, I, I, it's true. We shouldn't go through the, a life as just a bunch of cynics. Everything that can go wrong will go wrong. You know, living by Murphy's Law every day. That isn't really a life of faith. But every once in a while, a dose of reality doesn't hurt. So Jonathan firmly believed his father would not do anything without first informing Jonathan. After all, Jonathan was, in effect, second in command, heir, seemingly heir to the throne, at least in Saul's eyes. So he denies David's accusation. He says, as we read it there in the 20th chapter, it is not so. What, what you've just told me, David, isn't true. I'm just calling David a, a liar you know, in effect. Or at least he's saying, no, David, you're not seeing it correctly here. But David vowed before Jonathan, it is true, he said. I'm not simply paranoid here. Your father is out to destroy me. And he finally was able to persuade Jonathan because Jonathan knew David well enough to know David wasn't going to lie to him and that David had a pretty good handle on what truth was. He persuaded Jonathan that his father knew of their brotherly relationship and therefore, he had cut Jonathan out of the information loop. I'm not going to tell Jonathan anything because in the scripture it says because he didn't want to uh, grieve Jonathan. He also didn't want Jonathan interfering in what he wanted to do. Finally, Jonathan was convinced and he agreed to do whatever David asked him to do. Well, remember, David is a leading member of Saul's entourage. Um, Saul has his chief of the army is his uh, secretary of defense, if you will, there, Abner, his cousin. And David, his most effective general, was also amongst the top members of, of uh, Saul's uh, courtiers. And so he was expected to be at any meeting that Saul called. And so David was expected to be at the royal court for the upcoming sacrifice, which was the monthly new moon sacrifice and festival. The Hebrews, being an agricultural society, had developed the habit of celebrating the new moon. The new moon was the beginning of the next month. And of course, they lived on a lunar calendar. 
and so the festival of the new moon and the sacrifice to God that was made at the new moon was a very important part of their society. Now it was a minor celebration compared to you know, the Day of Atonement or the Feast of Tabernacles or something like that, but it was still uh, one of the periodic events that, that they celebrated and where they made sacrifices to God. Of course, pretty soon we know from Scripture that their sacrifices got to be pretty mundane and not uh, really from the heart, and so God says in the, in the Minor Prophets, I hate your new moon festivals, you know. It's just a bunch of baloney, you know, just habit and nothing having to do with anything from the heart. David was certain that after Saul's major effort to try to capture David and his desire to execute him, that Saul was not probably going to have a major change of heart here. In fact, David believed that Saul was going to be furious when he finally came out of this having been overwhelmed by the spirit and lying around out there prophesying without his royal robes on and who knows, maybe with nothing on, he was going to be furious when he finally came out of that and found out David had escaped again, that his pursuit was fruitless and that he'd been humiliated. I mean, Saul was not much in humiliation. You know, most of us aren't real big on that either, but you know, Saul had a little larger ego than most and uh, he wasn't too keen on being humiliated. Thus, David knew that if he were to go to that new moon festival, if he were to sit at his, in his proper seat there to honor Saul, that he would, in effect, forfeit his life. Instead, he planned to put out a fleece. It's not what it's called here, but that's what, in effect, it is. He, is, he has this plan that he has obviously been thinking about for a while. And so he told Jonathan, I'm going to hide out in the field over here while this feast goes, uh, this fleece goes into uh, action. Now what is interesting here is that he says to Jonathan that I want you to report to me on the third night, the third evening. And the commentator Matthew Henry believes that David didn't want Jonathan to contact him until the third evening because David wouldn't actually be there until the third evening because he really was going to go to Bethlehem and take part in a family new moon celebration. And most commentators don't agree with that. They believe it's just a story that David hatched up that was supposed to be told to Saul. What, in other words, it wasn't really true. While he hid out to see what the result would be. Well, be that whatever it happens uh, to, what it happens to be true, this was the story that was supposed to be told to Saul. Jonathan's task was to pay close attention to his father's reaction and thoughts concerning David. What does his father say about David? What is, and, and when Jonathan has to tell his father why David isn't there, how does his father react? If Saul asks, asked about David, uh, Jonathan was to tell him the story that, uh, that David had come to me and asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem so that he could uh, celebrate the New Moon Festival with his family rather than here in the royal court. Well, to put family ahead of king would be a good test of Saul's reaction. David was pretty sure how Saul was going to react, but there had to be a test, just, just to make sure. Just like Gideon had to put out his fleece, he wanted to really make sure that he was really hearing from the Lord. So, so David wanted to really know. If Saul was forgiving and made the comment, it is good, that is, that what David had done was acceptable to him, then Jonathan would know 
to tell David that it was safe for him to return to the royal court because God had prepared a way for him to be there. However, if Saul was offended and if Saul became angry, then Jonathan was to know David's life was in danger and it was not safe for him to return to the royal court. Very clear fleece here. It's either this or it's that. One or the other. And David was pretty sure that Saul wasn't going to just let the whole thing pass without ever commenting on David's non-appearance here. David then reminded Jonathan of their covenant before the Lord that they had made together. But he also absolved him from that covenant. This is very interesting. If Jonathan believed that David was worthy of death, then he was free from the covenant. In fact, David invited him, Jonathan, to slay him. If I, am, if I am worthy of death, if I am in wrong here, if I have sinned and, I, and your father is pursuing me rightly, then you kill me right now. Of course, David knew that he had done no wrong, and he knew that Jonathan loved him, and he knew Jonathan wouldn't do that. But he was willing for him to do it if he felt he should. Jonathan, of course, strongly protests this whole thing. I mean, this is, to Jonathan, this seems like this is getting out of hand here. And he says, if he discovers his father's plan towards David, he said, I will certainly tell you. David said, well, how? How are you going to tell me? How am I going to know what your father's reaction is? How are you going to get the message to me out here in the field? And so that's where we find that Jonathan invites David out into the field so that he can explain what he wants to explain to him without, you know, with great privacy, without anybody seeing them, without anybody overhearing them, and of course giving him the actual instructions about where the arrows were going to fly and where David should hide and, and all of that. He wanted to be able to do that in a way so that David could know what the answer was without either jeopardizing himself or David. Because who would know? Shooting arrows off down over in the hillside, how would anybody know that that was a signal? to anybody. Once they were in the field where they could not be overheard or seen, Jonathan vowed before the Lord. He said, the Lord do to me what my father wants to do to you if I do not tell you the answer to your question. Verses 13 to 15 of this passage that we read make it very clear that Jonathan knew that it was not he who would succeed to the throne of his father, but David. He prayed that the Lord would be with David as he had been with his father. Now you think about that for a minute. What? You want the Lord to be with David the same way he's been with your father? But we have to understand what he is saying there is, as he has been with my father in call, in anointing, in putting him on the throne, giving him victory over the enemies, over his enemies, but not meaning in any way that his father had walked in obedience with God. He was not implying that he thought his father was a godly king. He's simply saying, as God has empowered my father to be king and blessed him, so he will bless you. That was his prayer. I think Jonathan was well aware of the fact that he would not be inheriting the throne of his father Saul because of his father's blatant disobedience of the clear word of God. He then asked that when David came to the throne, I mean, you know, he sees David as being the next king of Israel, that he would not do anything as many kings did throughout history when there was a change in dynasties. Historically, I don't, go where you want, go to China, 
uh, you know, go to Europe, wherever you want to go, and look at the history of changes of dynasties. When one person comes in and overthrows a previous dynasty and establishes a new dynasty, there's a typical pattern of eliminating all of the members of the previous dynasty who might in <coughs> any way be a threat to, to gain, regaining the throne. In the 20th century, we see this mo most vividly in what happened to Nicholas II, the last of the Romanov czars in Russia. I mean, when he was overthrown, he was captured by the Bolsheviks. They shipped him off to Ekaterinburg and held the whole family there incognito. And then when the Bolsheviks were threatened with the possible capture of Ekaterinburg and, and possibly capturing Nicholas by the white forces and using him as a rallying point for which they could overthrow the Bolsheviks and reestablish the czar, czar's uh, family, uh, they, they killed the whole family. They wiped out the whole family. Father, mother, and five children killed them all so that there would be no one around whom the enemies of the Bolsheviks could rally. I mean, this is happen happens all the time. And Lenin ordered it simply because he wanted to make sure all the Bolsheviks were committed. It's do or die. You've crossed the Rubicon, folks. <laughs> we either win this thing or we're all dead. So you better be willing to do even the most heinous of acts, such as murdering the czar. And so David covenanted with Jonathan that he would protect Jonathan and his house when he came to power. Even, if, even when the Lord cut off all of David's enemies, and certainly Jonathan knew in his mind that Saul was one of his, David's enemies, David was to show loving kindness to Jonathan's house. And David will fulfill this promise, by the way. Then Jonathan prays a strange prayer. It, it seems that he is asking the Lord to fulfill this covenant with David, even through David's enemies. And then, of course, at the end of this passage, they protest their mutual brotherly love and they reconfirm their vows to one another. So next week, we'll pick up with verse 18 and, and into this interesting account of what happened at the festival and what Saul's reaction was and how Jonathan notified David what uh, the response was.